ولكن لماذا تظل عنايات سجينة أوائل الستينيات؟ ألم تقل هي نفسها إنها ربما ولدت في الزمان الخطأ بل وحلمت بأن تلغي وجودها وتولد في زمان آخر؟ لتكن عنايات الزيات كاتبة مصرية تسعينية لقد قابلتها بالصدفة في القاهرة في 1990 كنا كاتبتين شابتين تتكلمان لغتين مختلفتين أو ربما لم نكن نتكلم أي لغة على الإطلاق Welcome everyone to episode 48 of uh, Bulak. Uh, what you just heard was the Egyptian author and poet Iman Marcel reading from a new book of hers that we're very excited to be discussing on today's episode. Uh, we just wanted to play a little bit of it at the top and we'll run the full excerpt at the end of the episode um, for those who understand Arabic. Um, and as usual, we're, I'm Ursula Lindsay, um, with me is Marsha Links-Qualey, and we're coming to you from Rabat, Morocco, and Amman, Jordan, recording in our respective residences. Where we are locked in, or at least I am. Yeah, where you are still totally locked in, and I am uh, not totally locked in. Things are actually improving a bit here, um, or, or quite, quite, quite a bit. Uh, but anyway, we'll take our mind off of um, <laughs> the outside world uh, by talking about this really uh, exciting book. Yeah, actually, this is the is one of the wonderful escapes that I've had from the outside world. Uh, uh, many of the other books I've read recently have reminded me uh, of what's going on. This this book took me somewhere else entirely, for which I was extremely grateful. I think uh, we're going to call it. Uh, in the footsteps of Anad Zayat, uh, it came out uh, at the end of last year. Uh, although Imen started as a poet, this is uh, a work of nonfiction f- following her um, her other work of nonfiction, How to Mend on Motherhood and Its Ghosts, which is referenced in this book as well. Uh, this book in particular as you would guess from the title, uh, focuses around Anayat Zayat, but it is not, uh, as the book takes pains itself to explain a biography of Anayat Zayat. Um, to me, uh, although it has many, it certainly is, is as rigorous as you would expect uh, from a biographer in terms of the research she does, um, uh, but that's that's not the kind of the book's ultimate project to portray her on the page. Um, so much as one of the books that it really reminded me of a lot, and I was struck by probably only midway through, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, because I'm a slow reader, uh, was Jebby G. Sebald and his kind of peripatetic examinations of... Uh, of of the world and how he goes through different historical moments. Uh, this is uh, something different. It, it, in that we should say that it's a it's a book about a writer that everyone has forgotten. Yes. I'm so sorry. so yes. So, so Anayat is not somebody famous, right? Uh, right. Is it's and so it's a project of sort of telling the story of someone who who nobody's had heard of for or 
or remembered, right? Right. And the, the idea of an Ayatazayat that came down to people was a very sort of flat idea, right? She begins by telling us, what do we know about Ayatazayat? So she read Love and Silence and she was really struck by it. It became sort of a book that was important to her. She didn't think, you know, she's not suggesting it's the greatest book of all times, but to her in her pantheon, literary pantheon, Love and Silence, which was uh, Anayat's only book that was that was published and only book that she wrote. Um, in the late 1960s, right? It was published. She, she wrote it in 1960 and it was published four years after her death in 1967. Um, but the so the idea of Anayat Zayat because Anis Mansur continues to write about her. She uh, Hassan Shah talks about her. She does become there's an idea of her that exists, which is uh, her her novel was rejected um, and she committed suicide. I, I you know I think she attained maybe a level of notoriety is. Uh, at least in the in the late '60s, and this kind of the echo of this remains, in part because she was she was the woman who committed suicide either over over a book, which is what uh, Anis Mansour seems to uh, mythologize about her, or Hassan Shah over over the personal status laws and over uh, you know her inability to get a sort of a fair divorce and custody. Um, so there's this, we, we begin the book by understanding, understanding her in this very kind of flat way, seeing how she, ex- how she existed, the traces of her that came down in the popular culture. And then throughout the course of the book, I think we unfold these different pieces of her life and pieces of Egypt in the mid 20th century and pieces of the world in the mid 20th century so that she, to me, becomes sort of bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, until you're like stepping back and back to to look at the whole of her or as as much of her as we really can. I mean, through through Iman's relationship with her and through other people's relationships with her, um, and, you know, and, and through discovering archives and through immense imagination of her as, as well. Um, although it's a pretty persuasive imagination of her. Right. And it all, I mean, it all starts because, because Marcel sometime in the 1990s randomly picks up this novel, this only novel that Sayet wrote before she, and and is struck by it, right? Like connects to it. I mean, she has a lovely line in there where she says something about um, that the importance of certain works of literature to us doesn't, you know, that their 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 beauty and their importance, you know, doesn't correlate perfectly with like their importance in the canon or, you know, how exceptional they are. It's that they mean something exceptional to us at a particular time. Um, yes. And, and so, and clearly this book kind of spoke to her. Uh, and then at some point, uh, you know, many years later, right. She starts investigating and then it's a detective story. I mean, I really liked how, 
And I don't even know if we should give away because there's oh, so yeah, many it's twists funny. and turns. I, I normally I I'm not, I don't I'm not a I don't I don't care about spoilers normally. I'm a sort of a person who'll just tell you the ending of a novel. Really, I'm very sorry, but I am. But in this case, there are some things that I feel you must wait for the surprise. In uh, there were a number of times where uh, I was just blown away. <laughs> I couldn't believe. Um, certain aspects of because it is this sort of slow unfolding she she sets out what the basics are of what we think happened and then as she does the detective work about why did it take four years for the novel to get if it was basically accepted in in 1963 when around the time Anayat Zayat committed suicide why did it take then four years for the novel to get you know, we so we know these things, and then slowly, uh, over the course of the book, these like explosive surprises happen, um, and 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 yeah, the, I think those are some of the the joy and the and the shock of of reading this this book, right? And the and the and the initial, I mean, so there's both the connection that 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 Marcel feels to the writing itself. And then there's a kind of connection that she clearly feels to the writer, to the, to the actual young woman as she imagines her, because this is someone who wrote one book that showed a lot of talent and a lot of promise and then killed herself at age 24. And so you have this kind of tragedy and mystery and, you know, and I think, you know this question of you know what what role did her work and it's and she and she had applied to have the book published and she had been told uh it was rejected although as you say the story then as as marcel goes on unearthing it gets more and more complicated and she was also going through a divorce and a custody battle and so the causes of her death as always was suicide everybody Right, you know, right. They're so hard to find, and right. and people contradict each other, and 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 then there's this also this wild element to the story, which is that she was best friends with one of the most oh, famous yeah. actresses in Egyptian cinema, with Nadia Lutfi. Yeah, and, that's amazing. <laughs> and Nadia and Lutfi the, seems like is, is is herself such a big character in this book. Yeah, she's absolutely charming. Um, she's 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 kind of exactly what you would expect a movie star to be in terms of like her sort of ebullience and, and, and so on. And they had known each other since they were schoolgirls and at the German and, school. And, yeah. In Babalook. And, and, and Lotfi gives all these sort of details and, 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 and spoke to her the night before she died and has a lot of insight into her temperament and, you know, what was going on in her life and so on and so forth. And also that, kind of makes this extra tragic contrast because they were these two young women. One wanted to be a writer. One wanted to be an actress. One got seemingly exactly the, the, the life. I mean, as much as anyone can, that she dreamed of, Yeah, you know, and, and, and through this just absolutely for, you know, she's at a cocktail party and her, her aunt is, you know, said, you know, knows a producer. And I mean, literally, literally, you know, people are like, well, yeah, you should be in the movie, you know, and her career is launched Right. And and her friend who has very similar dream of being a kind of modern woman with an artistic career, uh, you know, is is uh, 
ends her life so early. Um, so, and the friendship seems very like touching and the way she talks about her even after all these years. Uh, so there's that element too. That's just, yeah, no, she uh, clearly, they clearly had a very, um, uh, close, dense, important friendship and, and that this, Re- this the, her suicide resonated also throughout Nadia Lutfi's life. It says all. It says repeat. It says that she had a nervous breakdown, right? Yeah. That Nadia yeah. Lutfi had a nervous breakdown when her friend. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the book actually begins uh, by referencing Paula did not go to the funeral, and she did not know where the cemetery was or the graveyard was, and Paula is the the birth name, uh, the real name, if, if you will, uh, of Nadia Lutfi. Uh, Paula Shafi, when she went into the movies, I think it said that her family didn't want her to use her her birth name. Right. So she's Nadia Lotfi, who was herself a character in a film. Yeah. There's a bit of misdirection there at the beginning because you can't tell what's, I mean, a purposeful kind of like winding towards the central story. Right. Well, what's um, I think what's so wonderful, one of the wonderful aspects, and I think this is not a spoiler. It, it, so it begins by searching for um, Anayat's uh, grave. When you do finally come to her grave, I cried in that uh, chapter. Um, and and Imen reports herself crying. And I, I really, you know, I just imagine all the readers weeping in that chapter when she finally finds it. And then um, Anayat was actually working on a second novel uh, at the time of her death. And she had written in her notes somewhere, <clears throat> the journey should start from the graves because she was working on a novel around this uh, German, I think archeologist you'd call him or whatever, uh, Ludwig Keimer. Uh, and she was searching into the archives and looking into his life, um, which is, I believe not a thing that Imen Marcel knew when she she started on this project. So as she finds herself looking at Anayet, she finds Anayet looking at Ludwig Kaimar and and writing a, 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 a what was going to be a fiction about his life. Mm. And so it, the the whole book um, sort of uh, begins and ends around looking for graves, looking for cemetery, looking uh, into these traces of of the past. There's so much um, actual physical wandering around, too, that yes, yeah. um, I really enjoyed. And, you know, of course, we both, we actually know the neighborhoods that she's talking about. So when she's wandering around looking for the grave, when she's wandering around looking for the house that Anayet's father built for them and where she uh, lived and, and killed herself. You can like really picture the places and the streets and, and this, this process that she goes through of, you know, again, detective work and also describing in like detail, but in ways that I found like so interesting and so charming, sort of like the people who are helpful and not. Yes. Um, the, the people who are suspicious, the people who, um, you know, don't really want to give information. And then the, the people who on the contrary, like want to sit down for two hours and tell her the whole history of the neighborhood. Um, and it's a particularly, I think 20th century, 
Egyptian phenomenon too, because of how fast history moved and how fast the city changed that you have these neighborhoods that are so that are like unrecognizable and full of kind of buried stories. Right? Yeah, well, like, it, it did remind me also then of Mohammed Shahid's uh, book about Cairo architecture, um, mm. because here she is trying to, you know, Nadia Lotfi tells her, oh, well, of course, everybody knows it's right by this, the most famous dairy. Yeah, I no. loved I loved that. <laughs> I was like, that is exactly how people give you directions. She mentioned some Laban that existed like 50 years before. And she's like, did she... And 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 she and she says, you know, yes, everybody knows it. Like, you right. know, go. <laughs> it takes her days and days and days to find this place. Right, right. And then she's the way- imagining the way the building, you know, seeing all the changes that have happened to the building and how it must have looked when Anayat was alive. I mean, I, I, I have to say, it's a book that I enjoyed very, very much. So far, I haven't finished it. I haven't gotten to where she finds the tomb yet. I'm about halfway through. Um, I feel like when we do these episodes where we both read books, I'm always the bad student who hasn't finished her homework, <laughs> hasn't quite, hasn't quite made it, gotten it done on time. Uh, but I re- I really enjoyed this. Uh, and I think, I don't know, I think there's a sensitivity to it, like, um, you know, it would be easy to, or not easy, but it could happen that a story like this, the person narrating it might um, put themselves too much into it, or there might be sort of something artificial about drawing these parallels, or, you know, it might be a bit too intellectual or theoretic in the kind of unearthing, you know, of, of a forgotten woman artist, but it's so personal and so sincere and so like delicate. I don't know. Yeah, I, no. I, she, at one point, she does specifically. She does say that. Um, so she's she's also not conflating herself uh, with an Ayatazaya. She's she's not looking for herself in this story. Um, uh, oh, uh, you know, I once um, whatever had suicidal ideations, or, or or this is how I felt when la la la. She really. I mean, in part, it's a. It's a story of her search, and that search tells so much about uh, class issues in Egypt and, and, and the geography of Egypt and, uh, and the history uh, of Egypt and family relations in Egypt and, and how people talk to each other. Um, and she, and she, the status she, of like women's arts, yeah. like women's mm-hmm. literature, right? The the category almost of women's literature and and gender relations. I mean, uh, yeah, abs- have, absolutely. The tragedy a- in a way of Anayet's life is one of the one of the biggest mistakes that she made was just getting married so young. And it says in a kind of throwaway line that she just wanted to get out of that strict German school and have right. a life of her own. And she ended up in what sounds like a terribly unhappy marriage. Yeah, no, de- definitely. Um, uh, I wish I, I had the line in front of me, but there's um, something about uh, her husband not allowing her uh, to work, either being the straw that broke the camel's back or the straw that she clutched in order as a drowning woman trying to get herself out of the situation. Um Clearly, it was a miserable marriage, uh, um, 
And then she had to really struggle to maintain her relationship with her son, which is another aspect of the tragedy that I don't want to ruin for anybody who hasn't, who hasn't read the book yet, but uh, you know, uh, but it's not just an unfolding of, of tragedies backwards and forwards. There's also this unfolding of beauty. And she talks about how, so uh, Anayat begins the book, maybe in the popular imagination, whatever trace of her remains, and maybe in Imens as well as, as a sort of a victim. She was victimized by the, by the publishing industry. She was victimized by these men who didn't appreciate her work or by, her, by the personal status laws, by, by her husband. Um, but by the end of the book, she's a, she's a person. Um, that's what the book has sort of managed to do is to find, take these traces and, and turn her into a fully formed person. And I have this very rough, um, very rough, not even a translation, but just a, um, a, a part of that I, that I want to read. And it's, uh, it's from near the, to the end of the book, but, uh, I don't, I don't think it gives any, any spoiler per se, but I think it's important to understanding what Anayat sort of becomes. So the story goes, on the night on which Anayat decided that life was unbearable, she left her son with her mother at 16 Abdel Fattah Zaini Street in Do'i, and she went out that evening without knowing what to do on her own. She walked around for a while, stopping to see Miss Yar, known as Madame Nahas, who was not from the Nahas family. She was natural and at peace, her hair freshly cut, such that Miss Yara thought she'd just come from the hair salon. They spoke at the door and she didn't go in, saying she had an appointment. She went back home and walked up to her apartment on the second floor on tiptoe, like a thief. No one was with her when she took the 20 pink pills, and thus we don't know exactly when she fell asleep between two pillows, managing to pull the covers up until she disappeared beneath them, or whether there was a lamp beside the bed that she switched off as soon as she was settled beneath the covers. I know that when you lay out the details, it might seem absurd that a 25-year-old woman would leave like this. She has a son and can't imagine life without him. A compassionate and enlightened father like Mr. Abbas Zayet, work that she loves at the German Archaeological Institute, a second novel that she's writing about a scientist named Keimer, and she goes to the hair salon and commits suicide. I too thought about this a lot, and I asked her sister and Paula and Siar and got no answer. To my mind, there is a missing moment in that evening, and Amaya did not go to the hair salon that night at all. She left her son with her mother. She ran back to her apartment and stood in front of the mirror. You women will understand that moment more than others, a moment when a woman finds nothing to do by herself, no desire to go out, nor speak, nor write, nor scream, nor shatter the mirror that confirms her existence. In that moment, Anaya decided to change her appearance, to bring her rage, her internal wound, and the panic that was controlling her to what she saw in front of her, to her face in the mirror. She took a pair of scissors and chopped off her hair. It was her hair, anyhow, part of her identity. Walking with her hair cut to Miss Yara's door with a sweetness of spirit was like a woman running at top speed after having set fire to her body, or like a dead woman smiling or urinating only because those muscles were at rest. She came close to asking for help, perhaps because she was terrified by her face in the mirror. But at Miss Yara's door, she decided that she did not want help and that she had an appointment. Hmm. So she takes... That's very nicely translated. <laughs> uh, so she takes like, um, 
these, you know, she, she puts, she assembles all these stories from talking to all the yeah. people who knew her. And then she said, this is the story, but, but this is how she also, she also infuses it with her Im- imagination of what happened. And of course I find it extremely persuasive that this is, that yes, that's what happened. But also it's, it's not the kind of book that would insist that that's what happened. It's really no, is no, presented yeah. as her and she, and she gets there after kind of a long voyage, right. Towards, towards what she imagines happened. Um, yes. No, she's very slowly building this character so that you all, all these different aspects of, of her, um, that are so surprising. It's like in first you see her, oh, poor girl. Um, she wrote this novel and it was rejected. And and she, you know, she obviously had issues with depression. And there's a, there's also all this wonderful stuff about how mental illness was treated in, in Egypt in, in the 20th century. And, uh, and, and then, but then, you know, she becomes so, so much more, uh, the, the second the, her work at the at the uh, at the German Institute and and then also this other woman uh, Isolde at the end who is now writing uh, a book or maybe she's finished writing a book about Ludwig Kaimar and uh, all of these th- what one of the things that really stunned me is some of these unfoldings I, I expected to be boring like I don't oh ancient Egypt as soon as I saw Ludwig Kaimar I was like oh she was writing a book about some German dude looking into a ancient Egypt. And it reminded me of contemporary novels where there's a like Howard Carter character or whatever that guy's name was some famous, uh, you know, Egyptologist, mm-hmm. but this guy's life was so fascinating. Um, <laughs> and he, you know, and the way in which she writes about how he was, um, going around and and looking for ancient manuscripts and just his whole life about how he sort of gave up being a German and, and became Egyptian Um, and his collection of manuscripts and his life during world war two and his friends. I also found this unfolding. There's so much around world war two and, and um, Jews who fled to Egypt, like uh, a young a girl who she was friends with in the German school um, in, in during the the lead up to to World War II. Yeah, it's a it's a book with where all the tangents work. Yes, which is yes. which is very hard to do, and then where despite the story, like you said, being so sad, there's the constant joy of her finding things out. There's there's the constant thrill of like getting a little bit closer, you know, finding out a little bit more. There's just the kind of light that 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 the it that her interest shines on everything, right? Where yes, yes, it, and she and she makes everything about it interesting. And I loved also the kind of interviews when she finally gets to talk to, you know, the aged sister Anayet's old mm, young sister yes, and. Yes. And how, and all the emotions that you have when you're, which I kind of related to as a journalist sometimes when you're, when you're digging for a story and you need to connect with someone and get someone to trust you and get information out of them at the same time and respect them at the same time and respect their feelings. Like 
you right. know, yes. all those yeah. tensions that are, that are at play in an interview where you like need someone, right. And you don't want to spook them and you have to explain what you're doing. Um, and the way people are so eager to talk about Anayat up to a certain point and on certain subjects, like, like there's an eagerness and then there's also a fear of losing control of her narrative, right? And, yeah. and some things being focused on that the family doesn't think are worth talking about. Right. Yeah, no, there's uh, there are so many things uh, about this discovery process and interview process that I think you would normally, well, I, I would normally edit out of an interview, right? <laughs> about the tensions between you personally and and the person and and questions you asked that they were prickly about um, that she puts on the surface here, which I uh, it, uh, really helps you see, uh, ultimately also see Anayet as well as seeing the process of, of discovering her, of tracing her impact, her traces. Right. Because the other question is sort of, I, th- I mean, of the many is why this author doesn't have a little bit more of a place in Egyptian literary history or, you know, what if, what, what might've been different if she, if she had both not been so alone herself, mm-hmm. like if she had found a literary you know, community. Right. And then also if, if, if these connections had been, if if if, so, if she if she had left more of a trace, and obviously the book is 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 doing is doing exactly that. Um, yeah, so I've talked about. I, I no, think. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's you know it's hard to say. Of of course, there were uh, women's books that had impact at the time. I'm not sure we'd see you know a different sort of world, but it's. Uh, it's it's also I think interesting that the the traces that we that did come down about her uh, Anis Mansour apparently continued writing about him writing about her rather throughout his life and mythologizing his relationship to her which was the important part to him who, who is Anis Mansour he's like, like I a don't, super, I've never read anything uh, okay like a very central journalist uh, literateur I think she calls him like a priest of literature at one point. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's like a gigantic literary tastemaker. Um, but he wasn't, was he a writer? He was a writer himself. He was a writer that's himself. That's not what he's known for. He was a writer himself. He's he's maybe more known for his non, his, you know, as a priest of literature. So Anis Mansour and Yusuf Sabai were kind of like, he, Anis Mansour like cl- claims that he, uh, he read the manuscript in 1960 and that he offered her suggestions on things she could change and that she rejected it and that he published some of her short stories. Um, he sort of, he makes a but claim. But then other people contradict that completely. They say, no, she never went to see him. Yes. I mean, like I, other people I think flat- it's pretty, um, I think it's pretty, certain that, that this is uh him mythologizing that he um it's pretty clear there's like a gotcha moment in the book it's pretty clear uh, that this is, this is he's invented this but that him being her mentor-ish person uh 
of this tragic woman who committed suicide somehow is like an important part of how he sees himself because he keeps coming back to it. But so that her story was like owned by these men. Um, mm. And now I think Imen reclaims her story, not for women. She doesn't turn her into any kind of feminist icon whatsoever. I think she yeah. reclaims her story only for, for the story um, to, you know, unearth an ayat, you know, uh, I really felt her existence as a person throughout this, not as a yeah. cause, not as a cause, not as a, a thing. No, that- exact, exact. Yes. I, 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 I agree completely. She does it. It's not a kind of, um, she's not using her to make a point. Right. Right. Which I think previous to that, you know, Hassan Shah was used her story to make probably a, whatever, a good point about how problematic personal status laws were. Um, and, although I was personally offended by this, uh, him roughly, a happy woman cannot commit suicide, will not commit suicide for a book, over a book. Um, like, well, okay, first of all, like, what is a happy woman? And uh, <laughs> why would a happy, a happy woman commit suicide at all? Um but that, you know, he was talking about, he used her story to talk about personal status laws and Anis Mansour used her story to talk about, I don't know what a wonderful benevolent duty is. Um, but that, uh, that so her story well, ultimately yeah. had to be brought out from those things. And the truth is that everybody uses other people's stories oh, yeah, to, absolutely. Their own, to their own, like we all kind of you know, steal out stories all the time and then twist them around to, as, to be part of our repertoire. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so it's more just, again, the question of trying to untangle them and find out what the, what their real basis. Right. Is. And I, uh, I would say I found Hassan Shah to be a, I did find Anis Mansour ultimately to be a villain. <laughs> <laughs> Hassan Shah is the person who wrote the screenplay for the uh, Uridu Hallan movie. Yes, yes. I yes. thought it was. It's not a woman. It's a man. Yes. Oh, I must have misread something. I thought they'd been at school together, so I assumed it was a a woman. And I guess because the movie seems so from the point of view of a woman. Uh, yeah. Well, he he. I think he interviewed he uh, he talked to her. Her sister, who was also uh, a divorcee, at at that they were, you know, they were both, you know, at, at some point she talks about how both of two of Abbas's daughters, who <laughs> he named them all, uh, Nadia Lotfi, I think, says that he was s- obsessed with the letter Ain. You know, he named them all names that begin with Ain. Um, yeah, the two of his daughters uh, had broken from their husbands. Um, but he, he seems like a lovely man, you know, Abbas Azayet, um, he was supportive of her, um, including, af- you know, def- defending her work after her death. Uh, and, you know, trying to help her through the, her depression. Yeah, he does seem like a nice dad. Um, do you know if, I mean, maybe it's early days, but are there any plans to translate this book into English already? Um, I 
I don't, I can't say for sure. Um, I mean, Robin Mosher is already thanked in the acknowledgements at the back. Uh, I, I guess just I assumed that Robin was going to translate it. I am sure that this book uh, would have a grateful audience in English, very much so in German, um, uh, and I'm sure in other languages as well. Uh, any certainly for any fan of W.G. Sebald, uh, you must read this book for anyone who's whatever interested in life in the world. I don't know. Uh, Is that your blurb? That's my <laughs> anyone who's interested in life in the world. <laughs> terrible blurb. I'm the world's worst blurb writer. People, uh, people oh, ask blurb me. sounds awful. <laughs> people ask me to write blurbs, and they're like, "Can I edit it to this?" Which sounds much more exciting. Um, uh, anyway, so I, I mean, I feel a hundred percent certain that it will appear in English translation, but I don't know. No, me too. I feel like it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, because Marcel's, maybe we should talk a little bit about her, her previous work. And we have talked about, um, her book about motherhood, um, in a previous episode and we can link to that. Um, that's actually the only, I think I've read some of her poems, uh, yeah, so, but not that many of them. Uh, right. So she was she was born in 66, the year before uh, Love and Silence was published. And um, she is, you know, sort of known as part of the 90s generation. She was editor of a, this magazine, Bintel Ard, in the, in the late 80s. And then her first poetry collection came out in 1990. And I think she is still primarily called a poet. Um, she published, you know, several more collections after that, even after she moved in to Canada in 1999, she really still remained and remains a, a very kind of central part of the Egyptian poetry scene. Her last poetry collection though, was until I give up the idea of houses, which was published in 2013. And I'm pretty sure Robin Creswell is translating that book. Although I don't know, uh, where it will be published or on what timeline. Um, but so then she started moving towards prose um, with her co-translation of Beer in the Snooker Club with Rime Reyes. And then she also translated, which was published, I think, in 2013. And then she translated uh, Charles Simic, uh, the poet, the American poet, its memoir, uh, A Fly in the Soup uh, for Côte de Prennes in 2016. And then she wrote How to Mend on, on Motherhood and Its Ghosts, which was translated by Robin Mosher and pu- published by Mufradat and translated by Robin Mosher. And she talks about that book inside this book. So this book was started, the Anayat Zayat book, you know, is a very big project, was started before the motherhood book. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seems like it kind of germinated for years, in fact. Right. And there was a lot of there's a point at which, you know, um, her relationship with Nadia Lotfi hit a little bit of rocky ground because she says that she had promised her that it would be, you know, done in a year that she would or that she'd have a, you know, a finished draft for Nadia to read in a year, which um, seems like a ridiculous thing to have said. And yet, you know, in the moment, <laughs> maybe it seemed perfectly reasonable. Um because it is, yes, such an enormous project. Um, so it, it's, you know, she, you can certainly feel her 
uh, as a poet in this, um, but she has really um, worked a lot on prose since 2013, since the her last "Until I Give Up the Idea of Houses" book came out. Mm. Um, oh, not 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 any fiction. Um, all of it is well, except for the translation of Beer in the Snooker Club, obviously is fiction. Um, but her writing has been, and she's also written some essays as well. She's also, she teaches, right, in the States? Yes, yes. She's an academic as well. And I think you can feel the, and she talks about, you know, some tech guy at her university giving her help and figuring out soft, you know, family tree software. Uh, you know, you can feel that she is part of the rigor of of academia and that, um, you know, she she also had tools for research at, at her fingertips as well. Um, and that she was also reading. There is like um, an, uh, a, a denser intellectual history underpinning to this than you would you know, necessarily find in a popular biography of Anayata Zayat or something. In a way, she has all the tools because, because, because there's also, there's that, there is that rigor underneath it and the kind of intellectual depth, but then there's the light touch of an artist. Right. There's, yeah. There's, it's, it's, and there's this gift for language. I mean, you know, just the descriptions of scenes, the way she formulates the ideas is, so poetic really and that but then you're right then there's this sort of like perseverance of someone who who is going to research a topic you know down to the ground and uh it, actually she has the, really all the all the abilities that you need to kind of pull a book like this off yeah yeah absolutely and it, it, it it's sometimes amazing to me how she can put herself into the book, like um, uh, I had mm. to attend my aunt's funeral the night before this interview, so I came in a dark and sour mood. A- and yet, uh, it never um, takes the place of the research or Anayata Zayat. It's just, you know, part of the painting of the entire landscape of it. Yeah. Well, I think what we should do is we should go out on the excerpt uh, that Iman Marcel very generously and kindly recorded for us to share and maybe introduce it first um, for those who, who won't be able to understand the Arabic, give a sense of, of what it's talking about. Yeah, I mean, I uh, just, um, you know, it, one of the things that the book does is imagining other possibilities. I, I think that this is, she thinks about suicide a lot, how it impacts the lives of other people around. And then I think one of the things that probably uh, is co- a common way, thing, you know, what if, what, what were some other possible lives she could have had? What if she hadn't, what if she hadn't, uh, what if she hadn't been born in the sixties? What if she'd born in, been born in the nineties, like Yemen Marcel? Right, but because also she finds a line in Anayette's journals where Anayette right, herself yeah. says, I feel like I was born in the wrong time, or it's 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 one of the lines from her novel. And so and so yes, she suddenly she kind of transports her to the nineties, 
imagines them meeting, not meeting, being friends, not being friends, how each of them would have felt about the other uh, killing herself. And, uh, but this, and she's also making this point, I think, about how she imagines her as having been very alone in her yeah. time, right? Right. Like, yes. Right. Uh, not being part maybe, of, of a group. Yeah. Of the, of a political movement or a social set or, or, or an artistic, you know, clique that would have maybe helped her not feel so alone, uh, at a time when it, you know, and she talks about the idea of struggle, of 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 constantly struggling on all these different fronts to be independent, to write her book, to keep her son, and and how it, at at some moment it maybe felt like she had lost all these battles. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an, it's yeah, an absolutely ahead. lovely book. Is all I want to say. Like, I I mean, there's basically we just spent an episode like raving about it. <laughs> there's, I really really liked it. Right. The TLDR. Um, is just read the book. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and um and 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 with that we'll say, we'll we'll say goodbye for today and uh and leave you uh with uh Iman and uh Anayet. Yes. Thanks Ursula. Thank you dear. Bye-bye. ولكن لماذا تظل عنايات سجينه اوائل الستينيات؟ الم تقل هي نفسها إنها ربما ولدت في زمان الخطأ بل وحلمت بأن تلغي وجودها وتولد في زمان آخر لتكن عنايات الزيات كاتبة مصرية تسعينية لقد قابلتها بالصدفة في القاهرة في 1990 كنا كاتبتين شابتين تتكلمان لغتين مختلفتين أو ربما لم نكن نتكلم أي لغة على الإطلاق الأكيد لم يكن هناك مشروع سياسي نلتف حوله ولا حلم جماعي يؤرقنا لم يكن هناك نجوم مثل أنيس منصور ويوسف السباعي ولم يكن هناك سجن الواحات أيضا كنا مطرودتين من الخواء الكبير بإرادتنا بدت لي كتومة وهشة وبعيدة ومحمية خلف قناع الطبقة لا أعرف على أي صورة رأتني المرجح أنها لم تستطع أن ترى أحدا خارجها في الحقيقة لقد استحالت الصداقة بيننا ولو كنت أنا من انتحرت في يناير 1993 لشعرت عنايات بالندم أكثر من الحزن ذلك أنها لم تحاول أن تعرفني ولكن منذ انتحرت عنايات في يناير 1993 وأنا أشعر بالحزن وبالذنب معا ذلك أني صدقت موهبتها وترقبتها أن تعيش لتكتب ذلك أني فهمت آلامها ولكني لم أعرف كيف أقول لها ذلك انتابتني رغبة في القسوة على عنايات ربما تكون القسوة هي الإحساس الوحيد الذي لم أشعر به نحوها تخيلت ظلت عنايات تبحث عن معنى في الكتابة وأصبح هذا المعنى هويتها لم تفهم معنى قيام الدولة بصناعة مشروعات ثقافية في عهد الثورة لم تعرف أن هناك نجوما ومناضلين في السجون وخارجها ومجهولين يعرفون بعضهم بعضا وصراعات تخلط الأدب بالسياسة بالنشر حدث معها ما يحدث كثيرا ما رأيناه بأعيننا يتحول الكاتب الذي لا يستطيع أن يتواصل مع الآخرين 
إلى بطل مسرحي تراجيدي يتضخم في عزلته إحساسه الوهمي بالظلم أو بالعظمة أو بانعدام معنى وجوده ينتهي به الأمر في منصب ثقافي أو يصبح متصوفا أو حقودا أو عصاميا متعاليا مشغولا بصورته كعصامي نزيه أو مؤيدا لسلطة من القتلة أو يعود إلى عائلته التي لن يصدق أبدا أن يعود إليها أو ينتهي به الأمر بطلا بطلا يرفض كل هذه الطرق فيتخلص من حياته ربما أن هذا ما حدث حاربت عنايات من أجل فرديتها وانتظرت مكافأة النصر من الدار القومية للنشر من نفس المجتمع الذي حاربت ضده كان الطلاق مكافأة وكتابة الرواية مكافأة والعمل في مركز الآثار الألماني مكافأة لكن خسران قضية الحضانة هزيمة ورفض الرواية هزيمة وانشغال صديقتها عنها هزيمة وتضحية بالحب من أجل الأمومة هزيمة لا يكون أمام الفرد الحر أمام كل هذه الهزائم إلا أن يقفز مرة أخيرة في الفراغ